before we start, I don't know how I got stuck with the Trinity. I don't know what went wrong there. But um, no, it, it was realistically one of my, I, I enjoy theology. It's something that I find interesting. Uh, it's what my, my master's degree is in. And um, I'm even kind of like the nerd that listens to like theology podcasts, like in my free time as I'm driving and stuff like that. Um, and Aaron was doing this core beliefs thing. And I said, hey, I just heard uh, a podcast, a, a four-part podcast on, which it should have been three, I guess, but a four-part podcast on the Trinity. I said, I'd really like to, to teach that. And I really think that I could communicate to the best of the ability um, what, what the Trinity is and how it kind of is structured and how it works. Uh, but before we start, I just want to say that I understand that the idea of the Trinity is possibly the most misunderstood aspect of Christianity. Uh, we hear lots of analogies trying to explain what it's like. You know, you hear like, oh, it's like water where it's in, you know, steam and water and ice and they're all three H2O. And, and every time we start to jump into uh, analogies of what the Trinity is like, they all fall short in some area. And, and as we can understand, anytime we fall short in any aspect of correct theology, it becomes heresy. And, and so we have to be very, very careful uh, when we're dealing with these ideas of analogies of the Trinity uh, to, to make sure that we don't fall into some sort of heretical beliefs in, in the way that we structure or the way that we like conceptualize uh, what the Trinity is. So in an attempt to avoid heresy, as I would hope you would expect all your ministers to, um, I will be giving no analogies throughout this conversation of what the Trinity is, only solid biblical study of each aspect of the Trinity and, and how they relate to one another. So the first thing we must do when we start to examine any idea is we have to establish what the belief is, right? We have to have an understanding of, of where we're starting. And we have to also kind of understand some background knowledge, kind of where it came from. Um, so as Southern Baptist, uh, we hold to the Baptist faith and message. And uh, I'm going to read uh, for you the Baptist faith and message uh, position on a subsection two called God. Um, it does go into each of the individual parts of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I'm just going to read the header to it uh, of God, and we'll, we'll kind of dive into that. It says, there is one and only one living and true God. He is intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. And so... It, like I said, it does dive into more into each of the individual aspects. But as those of you who have been here for the core beliefs know, uh, we've covered uh, the nature, the character of God was one. And I know soon we're covering Christ, and, and, and I haven't seen the list, but I'm sure somewhere in there, uh, Holy Spirit is, is covered and is a core belief. And so I don't really want to talk necessarily about each of these aspects individually. And that's why I just read the header. I want to more 
get, a, get an idea of what these parts are together, because that's what the Trinity is. It's not three individual parts, it's three individual parts as one. And so today we're going to look at them as one. So this idea of a Trinitarian God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where did it come from? Because we don't explicitly see this laid out in the Old Testament. It, it's more of a New Testament uh, doctrine and idea. However, we do see glimpses <clears throat> of triune God hinted at in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> and it became more uh, of a doctrinal belief as more of the pieces fell into place throughout Jesus' life and teaching in the New Testament. That's why it's usually referred to as a New Testament teaching is because Jesus' teaching kind of filled in the gaps of the Old Testament. Uh, and we'll, we'll call this the revelation. We'll call the New Testament the revelation of the Trinity. Uh, so where did it come from? Where does this teaching come from? Well, well, quite simply, it comes from Scripture. So where do we see it and where do we see it laid out? First, uh, we see the plurality of God during creation. Some of you might be shocked to know that in Genesis 1, we see uh, a glimpse of the Trinity, or we see a glimpse of this idea of plurality in God when Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. So what does this mean? Why would God say let us if he was the only being of God? It shows almost an, an inter-Trinitarian conversation, right? It's almost like God the Father is talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit saying, hey, let us make man in our image. They, they work together. It shows that they are separate but the same and that they work together to do the will of God. Even in the second verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-2 we see that the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. And we begin to see the roles defined as the Spirit was preserving and sustaining the earth. We continue to see the plurality of God throughout the Old Testament in Isaiah 6 and Psalm 110. Uh, we'll come back to Psalm 110 in a second because we'll see how it relates to the revelation of the Trinity. And, and I'm going to be honest with you guys tonight. I'm going to throw out a lot of Scripture and just for time's sake, I'm not going to go through and read them all, but, but all these ones I'm saying like these are instances where we see God either speaking or we see people revealing God's words to us, prophets, and using God as an us or a, you know, an our, or those kind of ways where we see God talked about in a plural sense. So if, if you're really curious about all these verses, you can just jot them down as I, as I run through because we'll, we'll run through a lot of scripture today looking at this. So uh, Isaiah 6, 8 and Psalm 110 are areas where we see uh, the, the plurality of God. And we'll come back to Psalm 110 in a second. We see more roles and personality uh, of these beings, the three beings of the Trinity, defined in Isaiah 63, 10, when it says that the Holy Spirit was grieved. Right? We, we think of grieving as, as a human emotion, right? Or, or an emotion of a being. Not, not so much the idea of like, uh, of God's power or something that we, we sometimes will equate the Holy Spirit with. And we'll get into more of that later. In Isaiah forty-eight sixteen, it says, God sent me and his spirit. Okay? 
So we see all three aspects of the Trinity in this passage, right? God sent me. So this would have been Jesus. In turn, this was the Messiah prophecy here. It says, he, God sent me and his spirit. So we see all three parts present in the Old Testament. So when we sit here and we say that the Trinity is not necessarily an Old Testament idea, it truly is. You can see the Trinity revealed in the Old Testament if you look hard enough. Now we see, we see these three aspects and we may look at them and start to wonder why this is then thought of as a New Testament doctrine if it's so clearly spelled out. And it's really because most or, or, or basically all of these Old Testament passages would, were really, really difficult to understand without the context of the New Testament, right? We're looking back at these with a knowledge and an understanding of what took place in the New Testament. When you have the teachers and the, the, the followers of the law of the Old Testament days, and they're looking at these scriptures, they're going, why in the world is God saying us? Why is he saying our? Why do we see God saying that he sent, or someone, the, the Messiah is being sent, and the Holy Spirit is being sent? It didn't make sense because they didn't have the context of Jesus' life and ministry. And so when we look at this, the New Testament, we have to view it as a revelation of the Trinity. So we look back at Psalm 110. And David says at the beginning of Psalm 110, he says, The Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, this is interesting because it says the Lord says to my Lord. Right? So, so why... Would David say it like this? This is, again, uh, the plurality of God. And, and we see Jesus actually quote this exact passage in Matthew 22 when he asked the Pharisees, whose son is the Messiah? And they responded with, the son of David. And, and then Jesus replied back to them and says, if, if David calls him Lord, how can he then be his son? And, and I think that this is very interesting because we all know Jesus as the son of David, right? We would all equate that with a, with a title of who Jesus is. But yet Jesus right here almost refutes that title in saying that how, if David called him Lord, how can this be his son? Well, we understand that Jesus is not necessarily refuting this title. He's not saying that he's not the son of David, but he's saying, think about it from a different perspective. He's saying... That doesn't make sense. So why do you claim that? In this moment, Jesus is revealing that he is God and man. That, see, that's what he's doing right here to the religious teachers. He is spelling out for them explicitly. He is revealing the Trinity to them right before their very eyes. New, the New Testament is a revelation of three persons. Matthew 13, 16 through 17 is Jesus' baptism. And you might recall in that instance, we have Jesus being baptized, God speaking, saying, this is my son and who I am pleased, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven. We see three all named doing separate actions simultaneously. So it, it's clear that in this moment, in the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that this was a revelation 
of what the Trinity was. It was not a secret anymore. It wasn't something that was being concealed or you had to read between the lines. It was something that was out and open for people to understand. We look at the Great Commission. It says to baptize in what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you look at the original text, that's a singular on all those names. So, so why then... <clears throat> Why then would they list all three? If it's a singular name, why in a translation would they list all three parts? We see this again in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. We, and we have to ask ourselves, why do the authors of these books continue to list out Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when we have one singular word in the original text? I feel like the authors are doing two things here. One, I think many of them are probably still amazed at the revelation that has happened before their eyes, right? This is a groundbreaking theological idea, right? That, that God is three persons. And so they're shocked at this. And so they want to just keep saying it almost in an attempt to convince themselves. You know, instead of just saying God, they say, instead of saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of God. That they just keep saying to themselves, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's mind-blowing. Second, I think they're also trying to drive this point home, not only to themselves, but to everyone who reads the book after. Right? That there's no reason for them to list all three names unless they wanted us to understand that it was all three names. And there's no reason that they would continue to do this unless they wanted to make a point. Right? So in the Spirit understanding the authorship's handling of the Trinity, the, the, in the New Testament, the Son, so Jesus, is generally referred to as Lord, and the Father is referred to as God. So as you're reading the New Testament, this should help give a little bit of context to what you're reading. Anytime they refer to Lord, they are generally speaking to Jesus, and anytime they refer to God, they are speaking to the Father. And, and, and if you're sitting here saying, well, you're saying generally, I don't really understand. We see uh, that, that the Son, Jesus, is only referred to as God seven times in the New Testament. So you might be sitting there thinking, well, the New Testament's pretty long and it only happens seven times. How can we be sure that he is truly God? Well, the term Lord that I just said is used to describe Jesus throughout the rest of the New Testament is used over 7,000 times in the Old Testament referring to Yahweh or Jehovah, which would mean that Lord is equal to God in the Old Testament. And so to refer to Jesus as Lord throughout the New Testament is to claim him to be God. So we see the New Testament authors referring to the Father and the Son as separate beings, giving them distinct titles in God and Lord, but ultimately they are both God. More proof of the understanding of separate but equal uh, beings of God by the New Testament authors. So we, have to so we have a belief, and we have a basis for this belief. And so now I want to kind of quantify this belief into three statements. And so if you are, I always encourage my students to take notes because it helps you to remember things. So if you're out there and you have a, a paper and a pen or something to write with, these are the three statements that you want to take away from tonight as the statements um, that must be true for us to believe what we believe 
about the Trinity. And I call them, just for my own sake, three statements of belief. The first one is that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second is that each being or each person is fully God. And the third one is that there is only one God. And if you look at these three statements sequentially, they don't work out. Right? If you were to tell me there's three people, they're all the same person, but there's only one person, I would slap you. Right? Like that's the dumbest thing you could possibly say. But these three statements all have to be true for, for that, that uh, Baptist faith and message uh, quote that I read you to be true. We have to believe these. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to kind of walk through each of these three aspects because what I find uh, as you look at common misconceptions about the Trinity is that people will compromise one or more in some cases, but generally one of these three statements in an attempt to make the Trinity something they can understand, right? Because if you remove one of those, it makes sense. You could say God is three persons and each person is fully God. That makes sense. Or you could say God is three persons and there's only one God, meaning that God could change himself into three persons, but there's one God, right? That makes sense. Or you could say each person is fully God. There's only one God, meaning there's only one person and he's God, right? So, so taking one of those statements out makes this mentally make sense to us as humans because we have rational understandings of similarities between what I just said and, and that in our life, right? And, but when we look at this, the three statements together, we have nothing in our life, nothing in our world, nothing in existence that we know of other than the Trinity that examples this sort of structure. And so I'm going to walk through each of these. I'm going to walk through what they mean, prove that each one is correct, biblically speaking, why it's important, and what happens if we take it out of these three statements of faith. So the first one I'm going to start with at the top is God is three persons. So how do we know this to be true? How do we know that God is three persons? If it isn't true, then they couldn't interact with each other. And we see this happening over and over and over again in Scripture. John 1, it says the Word was with God. If, if you're with someone, you can't be the only person, right? You, you have to have some sort of interaction there if you're with someone. John 17, 24, we see Jesus talking to God or, or praying to God. And we see two beings doing two separate actions. One is praying and one is listening. Right? If, if, if I sat there as one person and I talked and I listened to myself, I would be crazy. Right? Like, I mean, we, we, we do talk to ourselves. But you understand what I'm saying. We don't talk and have an, uh, ourselves listen necessarily. John 14, 26, Jesus says, God will send the Holy Spirit. We see all three beings creating separate roles at separate times, right? That, that Jesus is saying, God is sending and the Holy Spirit is coming. 
Right? We see three different beings doing three different actions in the same way we saw at Jesus' baptism. We already talked about that, so we also have that example of interaction between the three beings. It's important at this point to acknowledge, uh, before we get too deep into this, that the Holy Spirit is a being. I, I kind of touched on this earlier. Um, he is given personal traits that, that is more than just simply God's power. I think a lot of times we, we kind of rationalize the Holy Spirit as God's power, like it, that he does God's dirty work for him almost in a way. And, and I think it's important for us to realize that the Holy Spirit is a being who has attributes and characteristics that is, that is similar to all other beings. We, we see him teach, he brings, he helps, he intercedes. If we believe the Holy Spirit to simply be God's power, then we're not Trinitarian in what we believe. We see the Gospels, uh, things are done by the power of the Spirit. Well, that wouldn't make sense if you said the power of the power, right? It would be redundant. So if, it th if things are done by the power of the Spirit, it's proof that the Holy Spirit has its own power. It is not God's power, it is of its own power that it accomplishes things. So the Holy Spirit is truly a third being, right? It's not just the Father and the Son and then their mysticalness, right? It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, true three beings. So why is this important? Why is it important to have this aspect in those three statements? <clears throat> First, it shows us that diversity and unity can work hand in hand. Typically, we think of diversity and unity as opposites, right? We, we don't think if something's diverse that it's united. Yet the Trinity is a demonstration of diversity and unity working simul simultaneously, and this greatly relates to nothing other than God's church. Be because we look at God's church, and we look at how diverse the membership of God's church is. We have kids over in the children's ministry who have had public professions of faith in their life. We have senior citizens in here who have had public professions of faith in life. We have African-American members. We have Hispanic members. We have white members. We are a diverse church just in this body, much less the worldwide body of the church. God's church is extremely diverse. And if we don't have an example of diversity and unity working together, then that dooms God's church. Because God's church was designed to be a united body to serve God. So it's important that we see from the Trinity that we have a demonstration of diversity in the three beings serving three different roles and unity, them being truly one. So we look at this idea of diversity and individualism, and we have to acknowledge that God delights in diversity. God delights in individualism. That's why we have passages uh, like that talk about the body and how we all have our own roles and our own place in the body of Christ, right? Because God embraces the fact that we're all different. God embraces the fact that we all have different abilities and gifts and strengths and weaknesses. God delights in diversity and individuality. And we see other religions, such as Islam or Buddhism, that call to reject individualism and diversity. 
we have to embrace, as, as Christians, as Trinitarian believing Christians, we have to embrace our individualism and the diversity of the church as pieces of the body to do God's work. That's why this idea of the three beings is important. It represents that. <clears throat> it's also important to believe these three beings because if we don't, then we again fall into heresy. And, and I'm going to kind of walk through as you remove each of these three statements uh, that there have been uh, bases of belief or, or in some cases denominations or full religions that have spun off of these heresies. And so if you take away this idea that, that God is three beings, you run into a heresy that's known as modalism. And this is the idea that God is one, but that he changes who he is to fulfill the three different roles, right? So again, we take out that, so we say that the being is fully God and that there's only one God. So it accomplishes two of the three statements, but it falls short on the third. So this is the idea that God is one God, but he can transform himself into the Son and he can transform himself into the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I, I equate this to the idea of I am a minister, I am a husband, and I am a father. And at no time can I do all three things at once greatly, right? I cannot be up here preaching I, and then also giving my wife the love and compassion that she deserves as, as biblically laid out and parent my child in the way that is biblically laid out. I cannot do those three things simultaneously. I can do one, maybe, Haley might say otherwise, <clears throat> but I can do one of those, I'd like to think, at any given time. Sometimes I may be able to multitask and pull off two things whenever I'm using my children as a sermon example and getting onto them while preaching. I don't know. But I cannot do all three things perfectly at the same time. And so this idea of modalism kind of fits that same model that, that we can see, right, that I have three roles and I, and I can change between each of those three roles. So, historically, and, and we, we already have proved that this is not true, right? We saw that, that the three uh, persons interact, right? So, so it'd be impossible for, like, that'd be a pretty cool party trick if, if he could truly shift and do, and he's at the baptism. He's like, okay, John the Baptist baptized me. And he's like, hang on, I got to be God. Okay, now I'm coming down and I'm Jesus again. Like, that would be a really cool party trick, but that's just not the way that it worked. And so we know this is not to be true. And historically, there have been uh, uh, beliefs that have been, that have held to this, uh, this heresy, uh, but there is not currently a prevalent uh, movement that follows this um, heresy. There, there is, there is one, or there was one a few years back, and it's just, it's really kind of small. None of you have probably ever heard of it, um, but it is not really a mainstream uh, heresy that, that we interact with. You're not going to invite someone to church at Walmart and then go, oh, no, I'm a modalist. Like, that's probably not going to happen. So, so our first statement, God is three persons. We have that kind of nailed down. So second, each person or persons is fully God. 
Again, we look to John 1, which is, which is a great passage to prove the Trinity, if you just read the beginning of John 1. And we see it say that the Word was God. So the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we, we go on to learn that the Word that he's talking about is Jesus John 20, 28, Thomas says, when he, when, doubting Thomas, when he realizes that Jesus has been resurrected, he exclaims, my Lord and my God. John also says after his intro in John 1 that this aspect, this understanding that Jesus was fully God was really the basis, or he says it was so important that it was really the basis of why he wrote his gospel account. Because he knew that to be saved, people needed to understand that Jesus was fully God. <clears throat> Acts 5, 3 through 4, now looking at proving that the Holy Spirit is also God, which <clears throat> is, is sometimes a little more challenging to prove because we have so much evidence of God and so much evidence of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit doesn't get talked about nearly as much as the other two, but proving in a proof that the Holy Spirit is also God, Acts 5, 3 through 4, we see Ananias and Sapphira, and, and they are told when they lie about the amount of money that they, that they gained for, for selling their land, uh, that they lied to the Holy Spirit, and then they go on to say that you lied not just to human beings, but to God. And so we see, again, that the Holy Spirit here, saying they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they is to lie to God. We draw that parallel very easily in the same passage. This statement is proof that Peter uh, and the and other authors uh, acknowledged the Holy Spirit to be God. <clears throat> so when we take this piece out, when we remove this idea that all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully God, we run into a heresy that is the, the, most, um, the most common one that you will come across in regarding the Trinity, and that's Arianism. It stems from the teaching of Arius, who believed that the term begotten in John 3.16 was to be defined as created. So it was this idea that God created the Son. And, and this is a doctrine... That, that God not only created the Son, but also created the Holy Spirit, so that there is, again, only one God, and that He is in three persons, but not all of them are fully God. Do we understand, again, how we're taking out a piece? So this would be equivalent to saying that uh, between Aaron, Ben, and myself, we are three ministers of the church, but Aaron is the senior pastor, Right, and, and so he is the lead pastor of this church. And so we're all three pastors, but we are not all fully senior pastors, I guess. But, but we understand this idea that there is a, there is a tiered system in there that we, that we would look to Aaron as our authority on matters because he is the senior pastor. So it's this idea that, <clears throat> that God is an ultimate authority over not just creation and humanity, but also over Jesus and the Holy Spirit. 
And uh, this was specifically refuted at the Council of Nicaea. If you've ever heard of the Council of Nicaea or the Nicaean Creed, um, it's a very, very common uh, creed that you hear stated. Uh, you might know the, the song that, um, I don't even know what band it was, but one of those uh, newfound worship bands, the, the contemporary bands, uh, came out with a few years ago, and it was actually, for a while, one of my favorite uh, worship songs, and it was called uh, This I Believe, and then in parentheses it said, The Creed. And it just simply stated, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit, my God is three in one, is what the song says. And it's quoting the Nicene Creed. And if you read in the Nicene Creed, and I meant to have a copy and I forgot to grab it, but they specifically throw in the word begotten in there as they are saying that Jesus and God are one and that one was not created by the other, and they throw begotten in there almost as a jab to Arius for saying that that word meant created, and they were like, we don't even know a correct definition for this word, but it definitely doesn't mean created, was basically what they were saying with that. <clears throat> and so we see uh, that this idea uh, of it, need, it that, was, that was back in the... the second, third, fourth, fifth century uh, as these councils and they continued to have to amend uh, what that said to to continue to prove, to to address these advances of this heresy. But this heresy has been around since since the second century. Um, And we still see this alive and well today, this idea of Arianism and the the idea that, that God created the Son and the Holy Spirit Uh, Mainly we see it um, throughout Jehovah's Witnesses um, is where you see this belief, this heresy manifest itself. And you also see it not necessarily in a a religious circle, but it's this idea, this this theology has been under attack recently uh, from a, a group of feminists. And we'll get into why that is in a second. And it deals with this idea of authority. Um, uh, in between God and the Son, and then you look at authority of man over woman, and they kind of equate it, and they argue against it. So you mainly see this come up, again, with Jehovah's Witness. And, and they say that Jesus uh, had to be, cre- the, both of these groups say that Jesus had to be created and lower than God. That's where the authority comes from, is right, that he was created by God, and so that establishes authority over. So why is it important for us to understand this correctly? Again, I said this statement is by far the most objected and scrutinized of the three statements. However, claiming this statement is false, it does quite a few very drastic things to what we believe as Christians. It disvalues the atonement of Jesus' death. Because we understand that Jesus' sacrificial death was because he was God, right? And so that he lived this perfect life and and he fulfilled this debt that as humans we could not. Um, and, And so as being fully God, it makes the atonement of Jesus' death satisfactory for us to gain eternal life. And not believing that Jesus is fully God disvalues the atonement which then discredits justification by faith alone. 
This would mean that we then have to work um, for our salvation or, or this, this idea of justification through works. And this is what we see with the Jehovah's Witness. They do not believe in a justification by faith. They believe in a justification by works. And it is strictly because of this belief in there that Jesus is not fully God and therefore cannot be an, an adequate sacrifice for their sins. Next, we, uh, we then become idolaters if we do not believe Jesus to be fully God because we see uh, and we, we would have to claim the same for the New Testament apostles and authors because as do we, they worshiped Jesus, right? We, we will sing songs and say, oh, praise the name of Jesus, you know, or, or similar sentiments in this idea that we are worshiping Jesus that if he is not fully God, then we are not following basic, the Ten Commandments, the basis of, of law that says, you shall have no other gods before me because he is then not fully God. And so we would then become idolaters if we were to believe that, that this statement was not true. And uh, additionally, the, the personability of God is lost. And this is the idea that God understands us and, and can relate to us, right? And this is through Jesus and his time on earth and his, his time spent being human. And he experienced uh, the grief of loss with, with Lazarus. And he experienced a hunger. We see when he was in the desert being tempted by Satan and he fasted and said he was hungry. He, he experienced all the human feelings and emotions that we go through, Jesus experiencing God can relate to us through Jesus's experience of that. And so if Jesus is no longer fully God, it means that this connection between Jesus and God is lost and Jesus and God loses his personability to us as humans. And finally, again, we see, as we talked about previously, it disvalues diversity and unity working simultaneously because, again, we don't see uh, that in the Trinity because they are not fully God. <clears throat> Additionally, um, this, this removes the model of authority, uh, authority but equal relationships, right? And this is where we jump into to what I was addressing earlier, right? We see that if we do believe this to be true, that we believe that God and, and Jesus are both fully God, but yet we still see Jesus submitting to God as an authority, right? We see in the garden when he's praying, and he says, not you, my will, but yours be done, right? And we see other times where Jesus is submitting to the authority of the Father, right? And so we see this idea of, of authority, but equal, Right, And it gives us a proper demonstration of, of not only a family structure, but a church structure. And we see how our lives could, should be structured in this idea of, and we look specifically, I was talking about feminism, and this idea that the husband is the head of the household as, we, as laid out in Ephesians, but that man and, and wife are truly equal in that partnership. Right, And it's displayed, this, this authority but equal is displayed in the Trinity. <clears throat> so we see these things all fall to the side if we fail to recognize this idea that, that, that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are all fully God. 
The third, the third statement is quite possibly the easiest to prove and quite possibly the uh, hardest one to deny from another sense, and that's why we don't see a whole lot of rising against it, and it from a scriptural standpoint, but it is that there is only one God. <clears throat> we see this um, we see this laid out throughout Scripture. I'm just going to name about six if you want to write them down and to see that I'm proving that it says that God is the only God, you can. Otherwise, you can pretty much open your Bible and it's on every page stating that God is the only one true God. But 1 Kings 8.60, Isaiah 45, 1 Timothy 2.5, Romans 3.30, James 2.19 to name a few. Yep, I'll read them all again. 1 Kings 8.60. Multiple times throughout Isaiah 45, 1 Timothy 2.5, getting a little Old Testament and New Testament in there, Romans 3.30, and James 2.19. A trick that I was taught in seminary is when someone's, it's easier to remember the book than the numbers. So when someone says a scripture to write down the numbers first and then go back to the book, I don't know if that, that helped me out, and I don't know if that helps anyone else out moving forward, but it's a trick that I use. <clears throat> but as Christians and followers of the one true God and, and Bible-believing Christians, we are called to be firmly monotheistic, meaning that there is only one God. Mono meaning one and theistic meaning deity or God. So why is this important then? Because without it, we would be tritheistic or three gods or polytheistic is probably what you more commonly hear, meaning many gods. <clears throat> and as, as humans, uh, we, we don't really know uh, any sort of uh, tritheistic. I, I'm sure there's some in some region of the world somewhere where they believe there's only three gods. But usually when you get into polytheism, it's well more than three uh, but th there's, there's not really a structure of anything uh, displaying this same sort of belief right now that, that there are three persons and they are fully God, but that there is not one God. Uh, that, that doesn't really arise uh, often. And so when we look at these three statements, and, and I hope tonight that I have adequately to you proved each of these three statements to be true using Scripture, and that you can understand that they, they do work together even though you read them. Like I said, if you told me that there were three people, that they were all the same person, but there was only one person, you'd be crazy, right? That, that we can look at this and we can be confident in saying that I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, even though it doesn't make sense, Right? That, that's what we have to do. Almost, We have to almost rationalize that as Christians and say that. And, and so I think the reason we, we struggle to do this so much is because we don't have anything to equate it to. And we talked about that. There's nothing we know in life or nothing in existence that we know of uh, that, that similarly models this same relationship that we see in the Trinity. And we, we know from our own experience in learning that we must have things of similar nature 
for us to have knowledge, right? We have to, we have to use things we've learned in the past to help us learn things in the future, which is the same idea of why we learn the alphabet before we learn to read, right? It'd be really hard to learn to read if you didn't know the alphabet. We have to have some sort of basis of knowledge that we can relate things to them without a basis of knowledge similar to the Trinity, it's really challenging and I, I dare I say impossible for us to fully understand the nature and the relationship of the Trinity in our human minds. And, and you'll commonly hear the Trinity referred to as the mystery of the Trinity. And I think to some degree, we have to acknowledge that to be true, right? We have to understand that God has has this in control, right? That we don't need to worry about the fine points of the Trinity and the fine things that we can't quite understand because we don't see it and we don't understand it. We have to look at scripture and say, I understand that statement one, that there are three persons is true. I have to say that statement two, that they are fully God is true. And I have to say that statement three, that there is only one God is true. And so as a Christian and a Trinitarian believing Christian, we have to acknowledge that the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is something that we believe in even though we don't understand it. And we have a word for this. It's called faith. Um, you might have heard of it. Um, but it's this idea that, that we believe in something even though we don't see it or understand it. Right? And we're called to faith in God. And, and so for me to stand up here and try to explain the Trinity to you, which I hope I've, I've been able to, to adequately help you tonight in understanding this, but yet I have to leave you saying, have faith in God that he has worked this all out, that he knows how the Trinity works, and you don't worry your precious little heart about it because God has got this. We see multiple times in Jesus' ministry that he blesses people, saying that they are blessed because they have seen, but blessed are those who believe and have not seen. We are the blessed who get the pleasure of believing without seeing, which is a lot more challenging. Jesus himself said so. As Christians, we have to just have faith in God and understand that, it, that whether it's the Trinity whether it's any other aspect of these core beliefs that we talk about that maybe we don't fully understand or we can't fully rationalize in our minds, that we have to have faith in God that if we can prove it scripturally, that it has to be true. Because all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, training, rebuking. We know that to be true, so we have to believe that if his word says it's true, that it's true. And we have to have faith in that. The Trinity is honestly, I, I feel like I just wasted 48 minutes of your life because the Trinity is a mystery to us. And we have to accept that in faith. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your Trinity. Thank you so much for, for what it means to our lives, the example that it sets for us, the, the, the way that it tells us to live and relate to others and relate to the church, God. And I pray that you would help us to understand it to the best of our abilities, God. We understand that, that we cannot fully grasp what it means and how it relates, but God, we pray that you would just show us to the best of our abilities to understand it 
in the way that you have designed for us to understand it. God, I thank you that you have established and set forth such a structure that we can see this played out. That we know that there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know that they are fully God, and we believe that there is one and only one true God. We thank you for that, and we pray that you would just inject that knowledge, that wisdom into our lives and allow it to dictate the way that we serve you in our everyday lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.